So last night, um, Eugene was talking to us about becoming awake through the body. And tonight I'm going to talk about some of the difficulties we've been facing these last few days as we've been trying to do that. It isn't so easy. Um, And so I'd like to talk about some of the difficulties and how to work with them. And um, the Buddha called these, or people since the Buddha have called them the five hindrances. And I'd like to begin by telling um, a small story that illustrates what happens when they are not in our awareness. And I actually got this from the Manchester Guardian in England some years ago. So you'll have to excuse me if it's a little (laughs) anti-American. So it's a radio conversation that was released by the Chief of Naval Operations. And this is what they're reporting. Americans, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Canadians, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Americans, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. (coughs) Canadians, no, I say again, divert your course. Americans, this is the aircraft carrier USS Missouri. We are a large warship of the U.S. Navy. Divert your course now. Canadians, this is a Canadian lighthouse. Your call. (laughs) So I like that story because it really illustrates what can happen when we take a fixed view um, owing to a variety of hindrances such as um, I'm right and you're wrong. and if we don't see them, there's no possibility for clarity of, clarity of seeing. And there's no possibility um, to reach a peace. And we can get lost, or we can collide with a lighthouse. Some of you have probably heard a talk on hindrances many times before. And so if that's true, maybe you could just become aware right now of what hindrances are arising in you perhaps boredom, or aversion, or sleepiness, um, or comparing. And so, just as Eugene did last night and encouraged you to be in your body when you were listening to the talk, I'd like to encourage you this evening to just have an awareness of what hindrances, what difficulties are arising for you. At times there'll be sleepiness, or boredom, or confusion, or doubt. Any one of these may arise. So just be curious about them and give them a little attention. And no matter how many years we've been practicing, they can still trip us up. We can be in the middle of an attack of many of the hindrances before we realize it. Or we may not even realize we were stuck in doubt for three sittings until it's over. And so it's always useful to look at these and work with them again and again. In fact, when we sit and we start to shine the light of mindfulness and awareness 
um, on our conscious, consciousness, more hindrances start to arise. It's almost like they start coming up out of their burrows, you know, behind that rock. There, there it is, doubt lurking all along. Or maybe it's fear, or maybe it's anger. And so just um, be aware of this as you sit, that there could be a hindrance waking to sneak up on you. In fact, they're so deeply ingrained that we think that they're, um, they're meant to be there. We get used to them being there and that they belong. And we think if only we could get rid of them, then we would, then we would be at peace. But they're part of the journey. And in fact, the Buddha used them to attain enlightenment as he sat there under the Bodhi tree and was assailed by the armies of Mara, he used them. And so we can use them to come to a place of peace. So what helps is to shift the energy away from trying to get rid of them and turn it into the power of recognition. And rather than identifying and getting caught in them, to um, to become aware of them. When we're not aware of them, they act like veils or like mist, and we can kind of contract around them. And so one of the ways that helps the most in practice is to welcome them and invite them in. And I really like this poem of Rumi, which some of you may be familiar with. It's called The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, Treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. And what we notice about these visitors as we begin to allow them in a little more, the greed or the judgment or the doubt, is that they come and go and they're impermanent. And also that they're not who we are. And so just to give you an example for those of you who aren't familiar with them, there's greed and aversion and restlessness and sleepiness and doubt. Those are the five hindrances. So say, for example, um, you didn't eat quite enough at supper tonight, and there might be wanting, wanting that there was more, that you'd had more of something. Or say you ate too much supper, and now you're sleepy, and so there's aversion of being sleepy, and sleepiness is a hindrance. And then you start getting restless. And then with the restlessness comes, I don't know why I'm doing this. That's doubt. 
And there can be a combination of all of them that can occur together. But they're not who we are. And so what can it help is to accept and explore them and think of them as companions. And it's hard to be contracted when you're welcoming and inviting somebody in. So let's talk a little bit about each one of them and how to work with each one of them. And the first one that's customary to talk about is wanting, because wanting is such a big part of our lives. We're very controlled by the I want mind, or the if only mind. And we keep looking outside ourselves for something that will bring a sense of completeness. And so we're constantly moving from one thing to another that we want, that we want. But the nature of pleasure is that it's fleeting, that it just goes. And we have an ingrained sense that's sort of self-perpetuating, a belief that if only when we, we can find enough to hold on to, that we'll be happy. And this, I don't know where I got this from, it's called the secret of happiness. And if we could want what we already have, and not want what we don't have, we'd be happy. And most of us don't say to ourselves, I wish I was just like me. (laughs) It's usually the reverse. And the other thing about wanting is very often, it's not the object itself that's, that's the problem. It's the degree of attachment. It could be to a chocolate brownie, or it could be to enlightenment, it, it, or a rice cake when, you're, when there isn't enough left at tea time. It's the degree of attachment that causes the suffering, not the object itself. So what do we do with this wanting that, that, that causes us so much suffering? Next time wanting arises for you, during this sitting or when you leave, really explore it. Tune into your body. Ground yourself in the body and in the experience and just observe it like you would the breath or the body. Notice if you're open or closed or if you feel agitated or if it's very pleasant and you're attached to it. Name it as it arises softly, wanting, wanting. And if it's hunger, see if you can explore that. Is it the mind that's hungry? Is it the tongue? Is it the belly? Or is it the heart? Just see where the hunger is coming from. And when we do that, we begin to see what the force of desire is like for us. Usually it runs our lives, so it can be really revealing just to see what's underneath that for each of us. Sometimes it can be loneliness or emptiness. Sometimes there can be anxiety underneath. And if we can stay with it and keep noting it, we see whether it gets bigger or smaller, or whether it changes. Usually if we can stay with it, after a while it goes away. And then just keep staying with it, because that's when we realize that it's impermanent. 
And often there's a relief when the wanting goes away. And we realize that we don't have to act on every thought or every desire. And that gives a sense of choice. I was on a retreat um, some years ago with um, Upandita. And um, at the end of one sitting, I became very concentrated and I was in this very wonderful and blissful state. And um, the bell rang for lunch. And this was a retreat where lunch was the last meal of the day and there was only um, tea to drink after that. And this was a big retreat and there wasn't always enough food at the end. And so, although I was in this wonderful state, a sudden wanting arose. I should get up now. If I don't, there won't be enough food left, or it'll be cold. And yet part of me was saying, no, this is a very blissful state. I should stay (laughs) and see what happens to this wonderful state. And so I realized I was really caught in wanting. And so I began to pay attention to the wanting. And it became huge. It became the entire wanting of the universe. It was like this big open mouth. Feed me, feed me. Just wanting and wanting. And at first I, I sort of, this is gross. You know, <laughs> had aversion to it. And then I allowed it. And um, just, it just, all there was, was wanting. It felt like a universal wanting. And as I sat with it, gradually began like a big wave to crash and pass away and I was left feeling very peaceful and this must have taken some 20 minutes or so and finally I got up and I went to lunch and it's true there wasn't very much food left but by then I felt so peaceful that it didn't really matter but it was very useful just to see that it was possible to allow the energy of wanting to just get so big and that it would pass And we don't learn to tolerate the wanting mind. Desire is really reinforced in our society. It's an addiction. And it's unending. And there's like an inner hunger underneath. And very often, we don't allow our children to tolerate it very often. And we need to learn to be with it. We need to learn to explore um, what's underneath that. When my son was um, a lot younger, um, I was driving along with him one day, it was after school or something, and it was in Russia, traffic, and he announced that he was thirsty and he had to have a pop, and we had to stop now. And aversion to his wanting immediately arose in me, and we got into a struggle about it. No, I can't park, and um, you don't need a pop, and all this. And then I stopped and I took a breath. And... um, I just said to him, you really want to pop. How big is your wanting? And um, he was kind of, it's really big. It's as big as the car. Wow, that's really big. What does it feel like? I'm so thirsty, my tongue is stuck to the roof of my mouth. I'm going to die from dehydration. It's terrible. And then I said, wow, that's really big. How big is your wanting now? He said, it's filling up the whole street. It's so big. And he went on like this, and I went on like this, and I was being really curious about his wanting. And my tongue stuck to the roof of my mouth. I'm going to die. And um, you have to buy me a pop. And then pretty soon, we would continue to drive, and he started watching some dogs on the street. And... and, um, 
we came to a light and I said, how is the wanting? I said, hey, maybe it's as, as, big as, as big as my hand. And by the time we got home, he ran out of the car, ran into the house, started playing with his Lego, completely forgot about wanting a drink. And what it taught me was that not just that it was possible for the wanting to pass in him, but that my aversion to his wanting made the wanting more difficult for him. And that my aversion to my own wanting made it more difficult. And that when I could treat his, his, aver- his wanting with kindness and welcome it, there was a chance for it to run its natural course and pass. And so I learned that, wow, it's possible for me to treat my own wanting that way, not with aversion. That doesn't mean I do it all the time. <laughs> but it's possible. The Buddha taught antidotes to all of these states. And one of the antidotes to um, wanting is moderation. And um, I saw this once. Um, I was at some other meditation retreat. And um, this woman came up to the teacher after the retreat was over, and she said, um, I, I'm desperate. Please help me with my addiction to chocolate. I don't know what to do with it. Kind of expecting that the teacher would say, you can't have any chocolate, you've got to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, but what the teacher did was somebody had presented a box of chocolates to the teacher. And so the teacher picked up this box of chocolates and she gave it to the woman. And she said, have one chocolate a day for the next however many chocolates there were. And um, I talked to this woman sometime afterwards, and she said, you know, it was amazing. It worked. Because what she realized was, when we try and deny the wanting, and we push it away with aversion, it gets bigger. And if we give in to it, then we get lost in it. And so it's finding that place which is different for each of us with, with the moderation. How can we do it with kindness? And the other thing is that pleasure is okay. It's not that pleasure is bad. It's not that enjoying a chocolate is bad. It's when we're attached to it and we can't let go of it that it creates suffering. And the other thing that that helps. The other antidote is the awareness of impermanence. That pleasure is so fleeting and that it will pass. Whether we like it or not, it will pass. And the other thing that really helps with wanting is generosity. So you might want to just try this for a minute. Just close your eyes and put your hand or hands out in front of you. And then just say to yourself, mine, and bring your hands in towards you. And notice what that feels like in the body. And then just say to yourself, here, and open your hands and hold them out as though you were giving something. And notice what that feels like in the body. And that's the sense of generosity and how generosity can work with, with wanting, how it can help us.
So the next of the hindrances is aversion. And that's wanting, that's in a way, wanting things to be other than how they are. And that's the pushing away or the moving away from experiences. And it includes anger and resistance and judging and boredom and fear. And it's all based on dislike of some part of our experience. And often we feel really disconnected when that's happening. And it kind of feeds on itself and it gets stronger. And as you know, it can lead to a state of everything that comes into your awareness, there's aversion to. It's like a veil that we see through. And I'm sure we've all had days like this um, of wanting everything to be different from how it is. And if we bring mindfulness to aversion, we can move from being caught in it um, to having some openness and some awareness of it. So we could begin by looking at anger because that's the strongest form of aversion. And it can really help to see that anger comes from one of three things. Not getting what we want, getting what we don't want, or being hurt. And if you were to bring to mind the last time that you felt angry about something, you would probably find that it was one of those three, or it might have been a combination of all of them. There's a quote from Gavin Harrison that I like. This is in the lap of the Buddha. As we observe anger, we see that it arises in association with causes. It doesn't randomly flare up on its own. Neither does it burst forth from some internal reservoir. If we don't get what we want, anger arises. If we get what we don't want, anger comes up. Whenever anger arises, we can be sure that we're at an edge, a place where the opportunity for freedom and understanding is enormous. Anger arises when there's attachment. Where there's attachment, there's also the opportunity to let go. So how do we let go and not react automatically? It can help to see that there are three things going on. There's the stimulus that makes us angry. There's the reaction. And then there's our relationship to the anger itself. And there's, um, Thich Nhat Hanh has a wonderful analogy that he talks about. And he says that when we're angry, we tend to give our full attention to the thing that made us angry. And that's like a fireman running around to find the person who set the fire, instead of going into the house and putting out the fire. And so, if we can think of it in that way, we can begin to understand it. And so he says, don't waste time looking for the person who who set the fire. And as soon as we bring mindfulness to anger, we transform it, because the mindfulness is like a lamp illuminating the anger. And then the anger, anger has a sponsor. It's got a companion. And the anger no longer dominates and monopolizes all of our awareness. We're not just full of anger. There's anger, 
and there's this friend mindfulness. And we feel angry and we're relating to the anger at the same time. And I think what Thich Nhat Hanh says is, he suggests, breathing in, I know I'm angry. Breathing out, I know I can take care of my anger. We can welcome it in and we can take care of it. So often when we're angry, if we pay attention, we can feel a contraction and a tightness in the body. And it can help to just use noting. It's, it's much easier to try this in sitting practice than it is if you're out there in the world. <laughs> it's very hard if you're confronted with somebody and you're noting it's like anger, anger. <laughs> but it helps if you begin trying this in sitting practice. And not suppressing it, but just really allowing it and exploring it. It's just strong energy. We don't have to get rid of it. It's not bad. It's just strong energy. And when we get caught in the stories, I wish so-and-so did this, and they're that, and they're the other, and I'm this, and all this stuff, when we get caught in the stories, just coming back to the experience in the body again. Just like we come back to the breath, or we come back to the body, or we come back to the sound. Just come back to the feeling of what's the anger like in the body. And often when we do that, we see that there is a deeper story underneath. The deeper story may be hurt, or it may be fear. Um, And it may come from a very deep place. It may not be just this person or just this situation. And it takes courage to allow ourselves to experience what's underneath. So we're not using the meditation to get rid of anger. We're using the meditation to understand the anger. A couple of years ago, I was stuck in some airport and there was a two or three hour delay. I think it was Chicago. And I got very irritated and angry with some poor um, personnel. And as I was leaving the counter, I felt bad about it. I thought, what's going on? And so I went and did a little walking meditation and paid attention to my anger. And I remembered all of a sudden that a year ago, I'd been stuck in an airport and I was on my way home because my father was dying. And so what was underneath that was a lot of hurt and sadness in that memory. And just by paying attention, I was able to be with the source of that anger. And we don't always know what it is, but it can really help to bring some understanding. But anger can also be very strong if we've been suppressing it. And sometimes there can be an enormous rage in there. And so we need to work with it gently. And sometimes it can be too strong to watch. And so just not to force it, to treat it with compassion. And in fact, compassion is one of the antidotes to taking care of anger. And we can use loving loving kindness or forgiveness meditation, especially if the anger is directed towards ourselves, it can help to be very gentle. Often we react to anger with aversion, and um, we have this sense of, it's not okay. And very often the aversion can be um, judging mind. And judging is um, a very strong reaction that we've all been encountering the past few days. And it's comparing mind. This is a lousy sitting. This is a good sitting. Um, 
I'm no good, now I'm great. You know, it just goes on, it's endless. And um, it can help if we can see that our society is full of contrasts. Some, we're bigger, we're smaller, we're shorter, we're fatter. The, the contrasts themselves are okay. It's when we compare the contrasts that we create suffering. So it's the judging itself that's painful, not the mere fact of, that was a beautiful sitting. It's that that was better than the last sitting that, that creates the problem. And it can be like a tape that goes on over and over. I think I suggested to someone today to take one sitting and just count the number of judgments. And what will happen when you do that is humor will start to arise. And that is a good antidote for judging, is humor. Because we see how we judge the judging. And um, how it's just like um, the music that someone mentioned or the noise that someone mentioned. We don't have control over it. It just pops up all on its own. And so the judgments themselves are okay. It's our reaction to them that's the problem. And when we try and get rid of them, it just creates more aversion. And so what we try and cultivate is non-judging. But when they do arise, to allow that they're okay. And to just learn from them. They're good teachers, the judgments. So the next... um, part of aversion is fear. Fear comes up over and over if we sit in, as we sit and in our lives. And it can operate on many levels. And fear can be underneath anger, it can be underneath sleepiness, it can be underneath boredom. And um, there's a nice story that I like that I got um, from Pema Chodron. She says, once there was a young warrior. Her teacher had told her she had to do battle with fear. She didn't want to do that. It seemed too aggressive. And it seemed scary and unfriendly. But the teacher said she had to do it and gave her instructions for the battle. The day arrived. The student warrior stood on one side and fear stood on the other. The warrior was feeling very small, and fear was looking big and wrathful. They both had their weapons. The young warrior roused herself and went towards fear, prostrated three times and asked, May I have permission to go into battle with you? Fear said, Thank you for showing me so much respect that you ask permission. The young warrior said, How can I defeat you? Fear replied, My weapons are that I talk fast and I get very close to your face. (laughs) Then you get completely unnerved and you do whatever I say. (laughs) But if you don't do what I tell you, I have no power. You can listen to me and you can have respect for me. You can even be convinced by me. But if you don't do what I say, I have no power. And in that way, the student warrior learned how to defeat fear. 
And there's another story that I like about fear um, that I'd like to tell you as well. And this is a children's story. And um, one day there was a young man, a young boy, who grew up in a culture where fear wasn't tolerated. And so he had a lot of fear and he was ridiculed by the village. And eventually um, he was teased and judged so much that he left. And the night that he left, he found a rabbit trapped in a snare and he saved the rabbit. And the rabbit, of course, was a beautiful white and magical rabbit. And the rabbit granted him a boon. And he said, I would like to have courage. I would like to have courage more than anything in the world. And so the rabbit said, come with me. And so he took the rabbit and he continued on his journey. And after a series of adventures, they came to a village. And everyone in the village was running around in fear and anxiety because of the monster that lived on the hill. And the monster that lived on the hill was huge. It was slimy. It breathed fire. It was scary. It destroyed houses. It did any one of a number of terrible things that they told this boy. And so the boy was scared. And... Um, he looked at the rabbit, and the rabbit said, you wanted to have courage, so what are you going to do? And so the boy said, okay, I'm going to defeat the monster. And the villagers said, oh, this is very unwise. This is a terrible thing. You'll never come back. You'll be killed. And the boy looked at the rabbit, and the rabbit said, you wanted to find courage. And so off they go. They go up the hill and over the valley and so forth, and they get closer, and they can hear the monster roaring. And as they come to the top of the hill, the monster looks sort of huge and scary and awful, and you can just kind of see it halfway in the cave. And the boy decides, if I look, I'm never going to make it. So he puts his eyes down and he walks along and, and um, holds onto the rabbit very tight. And um, at some point, he looks up and he sees that, oh, it doesn't look quite as big. So he goes on a bit further and then suddenly the monster yawns and breathes out this vast gasp of flames and the, and the boy goes, oh, and runs back up the hill. And uh, when he gets to the top, he turns around and he sees, my God, it's grown huge again. And so then he thinks, this is very strange. So he takes a big breath and he starts walking back down again up the valley. And this time he'd say, I'm not going to look. And so he keeps going and he keeps being aware. And, I'm scared. And he keeps going and he keeps going. And then he gets to the mouth of the cave and he looks up and he can't see anything. Can't see any monster. So he goes into the cave and there on a rock in the cave is this little monster and he picks up this little monster in his two hands and it singes his fingers with this little burst of flames. And he carries it back down the hill to the village. And the villagers think he's fantastic, he's wonderful, he's done everything, and they're amazed by this monster. And they say to the monster, what are you called? What's your name? And the monster says in this little clear bell-like voice, I am what might happen. 
And the name of this story is the, mo- is the monster that grew small. And so that's how we are with our fear very often. It's way bigger <laughs> than the reality. And often it's what might happen that we're the most scared of. So, to move on to the next um, of the hindrances. And so, as you can see, it, it helps to be with fear and name it softly and welcome it. And the next of the hindrances, sloth or torpor or sleepiness, I don't think there's anybody here who hasn't experienced it. Put up your hand if you have not experienced sleepiness. One of these days somebody will. (laughs) But anyway, it's very powerful, especially the first few days of the retreat. And often we judge and we fear it and we don't like sleepiness. And we have a lot of resistance to it. Oh no, not again. But it can really help to feel and explore it. At the beginning of a retreat, very often it's just because we're tired. Our bodies just need to sleep. And we're not particularly resisting anything. We're just tired. We have busy lives. And our lives are out of balance. And so, so it can help to take a nap after lunch or to take care of our tired bodies and to respect it. Sometimes sleepiness can come when we're very, at the beginning of the retreat, say in the past few days, when we're beginning to get calm and concentrated and we think, oh, this is very peaceful, this is very nice, and all of a sudden the mists roll in and they begin to be dreamlike images and (laughs) it's not actually so calm, it's calm, but it's actually more sleepiness that's rolled in. And that's when we're a little lacking in energy. We're very restful, but we're not alert. And what can help in this kind of situation is to bring some energy in. And we can bring energy in sometimes by keeping our eyes open. Although you'll have found that that doesn't always work. Your lids start going clunk. Um, And sometimes it will help to stand up. At other times it can help to bring a real investigative quality into it and to just say to yourself, who is it that's sleepy? And really have that intention to directly experience this body that's sleepy. And that can sometimes bring energy. Or it can help to go for a fast walk. Those are things we can do with sleepiness. But one of the things I found that helped the most was to accept it. This is just a sleepy sitting. That's how it is. And if I don't do battle with it, there's a lot less suffering. Sometimes, though, what can be um, underneath sleepiness is a resistance. And as you know, in our, in our daily lives, we can, if we're depressed, we want to sleep a lot. Sometimes sleepiness can be because we don't want to feel what's coming up next. And... Um, sometimes when that's going on, or we think that might be going on, it can help to say to ourselves, what would I be feeling right now if, I, if there wasn't this sleepiness? And just see what happens. Nothing may happen, but it may be that you become aware of what's underneath it. The opposite of sleepiness is restlessness. And that's the other 
energy that we all experience. And that's a feeling of, I can't stand it. I've got to move. And this agitation of the body where you just feel like, if I don't move, I'm going to go crazy. And then this restlessness in the mind, which is worrying about things, and your mind going over and over things again and again. It's that kind of energy without focus. And we live in a culture with a lot of stimulation, and it stimulates restlessness. And what happens is that we think restlessness then means that something's wrong, and that we have to fix it. But what needs to happen is that we need to allow it. It's like boredom. Boredom is another of those energy imbalances, and boredom actually is a form of aversion, where underneath it very often there's loneliness or some other emotion. And we think that it's not okay to be bored, and that if the boredom is there, we should fix it. And it's the same with restlessness. We feel like we've got to stop it or make it change or go away. And we're conditioned to avoid it. We're conditioned to avoid restlessness and boredom by turning on a TV, by picking up a phone, by opening a fridge. And here you can't do any of those things. You're stuck with your bored sitting (laughs) or your restless sitting. So it can help to really explore it and investigate it and allow that it's there. Because they're just different cycles of energy and they'll come and go. People who've been meditating for years have restless sittings and bored, boring sittings. And um, they're just basic states of energy. And it can help um, with the mental restlessness or the worrying just to recognize that it's there. And to increase the, and it can help to increase the calm or concentration. Sometimes if worrying is very strong in the mind, it can help to count breaths or from say go from one to ten just counting the in-breaths can really help sometimes slow walking can really help when it's mental restlessness or saying metta can help Mark Twain says some of the worst things in my life never happened And with physical restlessness, that's where you get that kind of vibration in the body or just feeling like, I gotta move. It can help to have a sense of the body as not ending at the physical skin, but just making space for that energy. So all the energy can kind of fill the room or fill the whole of spirit rock. But just give that kind of energy some space and pay attention to it. What does it want to do? What will happen to it? And we find that when we can accept restlessness and just be with it, um, that flow of energy or that cycle of energy can pass through. And often, sometimes, my experience has been, there'll be a much deeper state of calm after that's passed than if I stay in the resistance of the restlessness. Sometimes it can help, um, according to the teachings, to associate with those who are calm. That's another antidote. So just to be around those who are walking calmly, (laughs) or just to to sit in the hall and just be aware of everyone sitting and the stillness in the hall. And then the last of the hindrances is doubt. And that can be doubt in the practice, doubt in the teachings. What am I doing here? 
this is terrible. Or it can be doubt in the teachers. They're crazy. What they're saying is garbage. <laughs> you know, and that comes up for all of us. It doesn't make sense. Or it can be doubt in ourselves. I'm not, I can't get it right. This is the wrong practice, it's the wrong time, I'm the wrong person, I should be doing something else. We all have that come up. It's kind of, and if we believe in it, if we get caught in it, it just becomes endless conjecture. And then we can get lost in indecision, and we can get lost in, we can lose our confidence, and we can lose clarity. So if, if we're in the middle of a big attack of doubt, it can be, it can help to just acknowledge that. And just to have the sense of don't know mind. I just don't know. And sometimes it can help to just really pay attention to the breath. Because if we pay, I know that I'm breathing in, and I know that I'm breathing out. That much there is no doubt about. That was an in-breath. That was an out-breath. So to keep it really simple, um, and just have that awareness. Sometimes doubt can come from comparing mind, and that can be very painful. And again, the same thing can help, just to take one step or one breath at a time. And it can also help to acknowledge that it's okay to make mistakes when we get in that comparing state of doubt. And again, Mark Twain says, what is the secret of life? Good judgment. How do I develop that? Through experience. How do I develop that? Through bad judgment. (laughs) One of the antidotes for doubt is faith. And faith can come from inspiration in the teachings. It can come from remembering to take refuge in the Sangha. To take refuge or... um, just remember something you've heard, or or just acknowledge that there are people here also doing this practice. Or it can come from faith in our own experience. And as our practice continues and deepens, that faith deepens. We have experience that doubt passes. So faith is very important. And with all of the hindrances, faith is very helpful. And with all of them, we see that they come and go, and that they can arise in any combination. There will be at least one sitting or one walking when there will be a multiple hindrance attack, when they will all come and go. And as our practice comes, they get more workable. Once um, I was on a retreat in British Columbia, and it was pouring with rain and very muddy, and I'd been struggling with some big hindrance attack inside, and I went for a long walk, walking in the mud, and in the middle of the uh, trail that I was on, there was this huge pile of debris and mud and sticks and rocks blocking the path. And as I looked at it, I was aware of the analogies while this was happening. I saw, well, I can either do battle with it and try and climb over it, and if I do, I'm going to get really muddy and make a big mess and it will be very unpleasant. Or I can simply go back inside and deny it exists. Or I can walk around it and um, avoid it. And that's maybe a little more skillful. 
And then I just started walking towards it, and I started looking at it very closely. And I saw there were little plants growing in it, and there were little animals living in it. And I got really interested in this big pile of mud. And I stayed there for quite a while, exploring it and looking at it. Then the bell went, and I went back in. And I just saw the analogy, because there was no longer that urge to conquer it, or to get past it, or get to the other side. And somehow that can happen as we explore and as we come to understand whatever the obstacle is. It doesn't become something that has to be overcome when we understand it. And it can help to understand that these things are not personal. I found that really helps. It's not my doubt or my aversion or my wanting. It's just doubt. And in realizing that, there's some freedom. And also there's no ownership, so there's no blame (laughs) when we don't identify with it. And sometimes it can help just to, when, when, when we're feeling that uncomfortableness, to just ask ourselves, what am I stuck in right now? What exactly is going on? Is there some filter I'm operating under that's preventing me from seeing the big, bigger picture? That's pre- preventing me from seeing that this is a lighthouse? So to just have that kind of awareness. And also we discover that the objects themselves aren't as important as distilling it down to just simply um, pure wanting or pure not wanting, that two-year-old mind. And just acknowledging and allowing and accepting that that's what's happening. And it's not a bad thing to have wanting. It's not a bad thing to have aversion. Because when we resist it, it's hard to be present with it. And in fact, what I've learned over and over in my practice is when I have aversion to the wanting, or when I want the aversion to go away, that's like putting fuel on the fire. It just makes it stronger and burn more brightly. And when I can just be with, oh, this is wanting mind, or this is aversion, then there's a chance for some peace with it, and for, for, it, for me to become aware that, it's, that it can pass, and that it can change. And just finally, to know that it can be hard to work with these things. So we need to pace ourselves, and we need to be gentle. Some days we can work with the anger, and we can work with the wanting. And some days, or some sittings, it may feel like it's too much, it's too big. I can't do this right now. Either is okay. It's not that we have to work with the wanting. It's, it's more becoming aware of, of what's appropriate for us in that moment. Sometimes it can really help to focus and become clear and get understanding. Sometimes it can really help to make space around something and have loving kindness. And as we begin to trust, we begin to know what's right in each particular moment. And so we need also to feel and to honor the things that are underneath the wanting and the aversion. 
the wounds or the grief or um, whatever it is. And little by little with our practice, as our practice deepens, um, we can explore and heal deeper and deeper wounds. Probably some of you are beginning to see that. And one of the things that really helps is patience, is being patient with ourselves, knowing that it takes time, and honoring our own particular unfolding, our own way of working with the difficulties. That we don't have to do anything. There isn't anything that needs fixing. And just to let our heart open to the extent that we can. And it's also important to recognize when we have an agenda. If I'm paying attention to my fear, and believe me, I've done this many times, if I'm paying attention to my fear and I'm exploring it like a good meditator in order for it to go away, (laughs) that's a subtle aversion (laughs) or a subtle wanting. And so just to be aware of that, do I have an agenda here? And that's okay. It's just something else to be aware of. So it's, it's what, we're, what we're opening to is giving full permission to be, for things to be the way they are, however that is. So we can learn from the pleasant, we can learn from the neutral, we can learn from the unpleasant. And trust helps with that. And the practice itself brings trust as we sit. So I'd like to just finish by reading this um, poem by Roger Keyes. And it's called Hokusai Says. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. There is no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing. You just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck. That's the hindrances. Accept it. Repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Everyone has a body. Every one of us is frightened. Every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength 
is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look, feel, let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. So let's just sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.